0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Please be seated. So, is it just me or today's gospel text feel like it should be a Lenten reading? It certainly feels that way to me. I mean, we're, we're six weeks into the season of Easter, the season that begins with the resurrection. But here we have a story in John 13 that not only happens before the resurrection, this story happens before Jesus is even arrested and crucified. What in the world's going on? Why are we revisiting a story in the Gospels that seems so chronologically out of place? Well, I struggled with that question for most of the week, and, and then I finally realized something. I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea why this reading was here. I wasn't sure what context it provided, and I had no idea how to preach John 13 in the middle of the Easter season. So I just stopped trying to answer that question the question of John 13's placement. And I just started reading the text instead. Much to my surprise, something happened. The more I read these verses, the more I saw the events that were around them, I slowly began to realize that our gospel text may actually be perfectly placed here in the middle of Easter. I slowly began to realize that these verses set the stage beautifully for celebrations of the church that are still yet to occur. And so this morning... I want to explain to you exactly what I mean. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to our gospel text, John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 34. Now, John chapter 13, verse 34 reads this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, the very first question I had when I read this verse was this. In what way is loving one another a new commandment? Didn't Jesus say that the entire law could be summed up as love God and love your neighbor? He, in fact, said those exact words. So how can Jesus now say that he's giving the disciples a new commandment? Well, look again at verse 34, and this time pay close attention. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Did you catch it that time? Did you hear why this was indeed a new commandment? You see, God had told his people many times before that they should love one another, that they should have mercy upon one another, care for one another, and that they should care for one another in a very, very deep way in a way that they would even have others care for them, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And while that golden rule is profound and it is beautiful, it is not what Jesus is saying in our text today. Jesus isn't saying love others with the kind of love you want in return. No. Instead, Jesus says something that seems unattainably lofty, Jesus tells the disciples to love one another with the same exact love with which he has loved them. Jesus was telling these quarrelsome disciples that seemed to have a hard time even speaking kindly to one another that he wanted them to love each other no different than he loved them. Imagine the next time you go to the cardiologist, he tells you that just as he has cared for your heart, he now wants you to go into the world and care for the hearts of others in the same exact way he's cared for yours. What would your response be? Hopefully, the only sane response you thought of would be, no way, dude, that is impossible. (laughs) I can't even keep up with my jacket half the time. Now you want me to go and care for someone else's heart? I don't have what it takes to care for the hearts of people the same way a cardiologist does. The disciples are in a situation much like that. They are being told not just to love the way they would like to be loved, but to love others perfectly. To love them no differently than God himself loves them. So how in the world are these rough, often clueless, sometimes arrogant men supposed to do that? Surely Jesus isn't commanding them to do something he knows is impossible for them. If they were going to do what Jesus was asking them, something had to happen to make fulfilling his new commandment possible. So it seems that the new commandment given to the disciples in John 13 anticipates something happening in the disciples that had yet to occur. And this foreshadowing of something yet to occur in the disciples is what makes our gospel text a perfect fit in this part of the Easter season. You see, if the disciples were going to do what Jesus was asking of them, if they were going to love one another just as Jesus loved them, then nothing short of possessing the very love of Jesus himself would suffice. If the disciples were going to keep this new commandment, then the very heart of Jesus needed to beat inside of them. Their hearts of stone needed to be transformed into hearts of flesh. And as of John 13, that had not happened to them. But there was coming a day very soon, a day of Pentecost, when the very Spirit of God would descend upon these men and give them the very mind and heart of Jesus himself. The very Spirit of God would fill these men and supply them with everything they needed to fulfill this new commandment. And as the Spirit-filled disciples moved into the world, they loved with the ferocity and purity of God himself. It seems to me that as we sit here on the sixth Sunday of Easter, anticipating the day of Pentecost, we get to sense and feel that expectation, much as the disciples did. We get to feel the weight of this new commandment and experience the utter impossibility of keeping it. And maybe that's why this text is here in the midst of Easter. For as monumental as the resurrection of Jesus was and is, there was still yet more work to be done in the hearts of men. You see, just as the disciples were, were unable on their own to fulfill the new commandment of Jesus, so too are we. On our own, apart from God, we will never fulfill this new commandment. We will never love one another the way God loves us. We possess no ability in ourselves to love people the same way God does. But Jesus makes us the same exact promise he made his disciples. He promises to place in us new life, to place in us a new heart and mind, to place in us his very love. And with the love of God pouring out of these new hearts, he then commands us as he did the 12, to not only love as he does, but to love where he does. The love of God placed in us is to be taken into a world devoid of that love, into a world that may indeed be hostile to that love. And while that is far from safe and oftentimes the exact opposite of easy, it is the only hope this world has. The quality of that self-giving, self-sacrificing love is so fundamentally different than the love of the world that it seems to be the definitive marker of a disciple of Jesus. At least Jesus thought so. In verse 35, Jesus says this, By this, all people will know that you were my disciples if you have love for one another. There's a lot of worthy things Jesus could have said are a definitive marker of one of his disciples. Jesus could have said that the world will know us by how often we attend church. Jesus could have said the world will know us by the amount of scripture we've memorized. Jesus even could have said that the world will know us by taking uncompromising stances on foundational moral issues. But he didn't. And don't misunderstand me. I think attending church is not optional. The memorization of Scripture is fundamental. And holding true to the morals of our faith is an absolute necessity. None of those seem to be the definitive way people see that we know the Lord Jesus, though. They will know us by how we love them. If our neighbors know we're Christians... If they see us dutifully attend every single church service of the year, yet they doubt whether or not we even know their name, what message are we sending them about Jesus? With what love are we loving them? If you're wondering what the love of God looks like in action, keep in mind that Jesus is saying all of this even while he's being betrayed. The very beginning of the Gospel text in verse 31, look there with me. The text begins rather abruptly in the ESV. It says, when he had gone out. And we all know that the he mentioned here is one of the twelve, Judas. But at this point in the Gospels, we all know the destination of Judas and why he's leaving that upper room. Judas is on his way to see the chief priest and to betray his friend. Judas is taking the literal first steps of betraying the Lord Jesus himself. And other than Judas, Jesus seems to be the only person in that room who understands what's happening. Jesus understands that Judas has betrayed him in his heart already, and the only thing left is for Judas to betray him in his actions as well. And while Jesus and Judas are the only two who understand that treachery is occurring, it seems to be only Jesus who sees what the true fruits of Judas' betrayal will become. Judas' betrayal will lead to Jesus' arrest. Mm -hmm. His arrest will lead to his torture, his mockery, and ultimately to his brutal crucifixion and death. But Jesus also knows that his crucifixion and death will culminate in his resurrection, And by that resurrection, through the resurrected one himself, death will be gutted. Death will be defamed. Death will be killed and no longer have any claim on anyone claimed by Jesus. And I think that's why Jesus responds the way that he does in our gospel text's first verse. When he says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Jesus is able to speak of being glorified in the midst of absolute demonic treachery. Not because that treachery wasn't real. Not because it didn't hurt him to see a close friend, hand him over to murderers. But because Jesus knew everything that was being done to stop him would become the very means by which his resurrection was brought about. And guys, this is important for us to remember in these troubling, uncertain times. Everywhere we look, the world seems like it's just coming apart at the seams. Institutions long trusted as gatekeepers of decency and truth are now viewed by many with deep suspicion. And unfortunately, in many, many cases, that suspicion is well-founded. Words like scandal and malfeasance are now far too often connected with the exact institutions established to root them out. And as you know, the problems of this world aren't confined to large-scale institutions either. Something as small and yet as fundamental as words and their meanings, meanings that were self-evident yesterday, have become topics so contentious that you voice an opinion at your own risk. And in the midst of all of this disagreement about foundational issues and mistrust, in the midst of every conversation potentially turning into an argument, we find ourselves confronted with wars, plagues, inflation, and a threat of scarcity on everything other than fear. But brothers, sisters, remember the lesson John 13 teaches us. Remember that everything that was done to stop Jesus everything that was done to silence him were themselves the very means by which his resurrection was brought about. So as this world rails against the gospel, as this world seeks ever more devious ways to distort the truth and undermine Christ's claim upon this earth, know in your heart, none of it will succeed. Evil will fail to upend Jesus' claim on this earth. Every force in this world sent against him will be defeated. Every action in this world designed to stop Jesus and overthrow his claim upon his creation will under his providential hand themselves become the very means by which his triumphant return occurs. The outcome of this world becoming ever more hostile to Jesus is but to make his manifestation all the sooner. And from this day until that, Jesus has charged his disciples to proclaim the good news, to go into the dark and dying world with the light and life of Christ. He commands us to love those who hate us, to bless those who cursed us, to manifest the very love of Jesus in and to a world that may indeed despise us for doing so. But he does not ask you to do it with your love. He doesn't ask you to do it on your own. No. Jesus sends us into a world that hates us, a world that hates Jesus himself, a world that is impossible for us to love unless Christ loves it through us. And that's just what he intends to do. Christ wants to fill you with a love that you do not have, a love which is not your own. He wants to fill you with the very love of God and with that love beating in your heart, call you into a world so dark that only God himself could ever love it. And when we love like that, when we love one another with the same love with which Christ has loved us, the world will see it for what it is, a love that only God himself could produce. And then they will see us for what we are, a people filled with a love that only God can provide. I'm thankful that our eyes have been drawn back to John 13 during this Easter time. I'm thankful that John 13 calls our eyes forward to the day of Pentecost. And I'm thankful that our eyes are drawn further still to that coming day when Jesus descends upon this earth and we can then behold the one who has placed his love in us face to face i